Friends, we are continuing a series of messages out of the letter to the Ephesian church that the Apostle Paul wrote. So I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to um, Ephesians chapter 2 in this uh, third message now from the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10, and that's found on page 1665 in the Pew Bibles. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Listen to God's word. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Beloved in Christ, I had a child and teenage friend growing up named Chuck. Average sized guy, 5 foot 10, 160 pounds. We graduated high school, went our separate ways, drifted apart as friends because of geographic location. I'd keep up on news about Chuck because our mothers talked at church. One time my mom mentioned to me that Chucky, we called him that, had taken up bodybuilding. I said, you mean like, like weightlifting, right, mom? No, bodybuilding. He's entering contests and everything. Well, I couldn't believe this. He was, he was just an average-sized guy, so one summer break in college, we, we were both back home. I ran into Chuck, and wow, what a difference. He had he had a body now. He was, he was bodybuilding all right. He had all the muscles and physique that a bodybuilder has to have, and he confided to me that he had to shave his legs and his chest hair and all that stuff so that he could oil himself up and make him look bigger even than he was when he was competing. And I mean, it was just incredible what a huge change had happened to Chuck. He must have worked hours and hours and months and months to get his body into that kind of shape. 
Maybe you know people like that who have gone from 98-pound weakling to big, huge guy. Or friend who used to be terribly shy, and now she's personality plus. Maybe you know people who have gone through big changes. That's what our scripture is about tonight. But it describes the biggest and best change ever. All other, even big changes, pale in comparison to the change we read about in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul pulls out all the stops to show it to us, the change that happens when God gets a hold of us and turns our lives completely around. That change tops the list every time. It is the greatest change. God's word here gives us a here is what you once were scenario followed by a here is what you are now scenario. Once were, are now. Number one, we once were detainees of death. As for you, says Paul, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. In other words, death once had its hold on us. We were its detainees. These days you hear a lot about detainees. You get detained at the airport because some metal object in your carry-on bag shows up on the x-ray machine. Sir, we're going to have to ask you to stand right over here, please. We're going to need to wand you. Yikes, be careful with that thing. Detained. You're, you're sitting in the waiting room at the doctor. You're detained. And then in the exam room, and you realize, well, your doctor has been detained. Man. Young people are detained in detention. Oh boy, that makes five now. You right now are detained. Preach it already, Grunbaum, will you? Bunch of detainees you are. The Apostle Paul says you once were detainees of death. What does that mean? Well, of course, Paul is not talking about being physically dead. Paul is talking about being spiritually dead. What does it mean to be spiritually dead? It's the status of every human being that has ever lived except Jesus and initially Adam and Eve for a bit. Did you know that is our status? When we start out conceived, born into sin, we are spiritually dead. The fall into sin by our first parents, Adam and Eve, pronounced that sentence on all of us. Spiritual death. God said, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. But they ate. That event spelled spiritual death for all of us. What does spiritual death mean? It means we have no desire whatsoever for God. No desire for relationship with him. No desire to love him, serve him, have him dwell with us. When you follow that through to the end, that spiritual death only gets worse and worse because there comes a day when God gives us exactly what we want. C.S. Lewis liked to talk about it that way. We want to live for ourselves and not God. And God says, if that's what you want, that's what you shall have forever. You shall have an eternity like that. It will be an eternity of hell. Because there will be no hope, love, or the presence of God in that eternity. It will be utter misery and suffering for you. That's what being a detainee of death is all about. Spiritually dead people and being finally, ultimately, shut out from the presence of the living God. 
That road begins the moment we are conceived. That's what we want, and that's what God gives us. We want a life with no desire for God, and we will end up with an eternity shut out from his presence. Paul says that state you once were in. You might as well call it what it is. It's death, spiritual death. You are indefinite detainees of death. Number two, we once were subjects of Satan. You were dead in your sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. That is the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Now, who in the world is taught talking about here. The ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, long title, it's Satan, the devil. Paul says, what you once were was a subject of Satan. Beloved, let the gravity of that truth sink in for a moment. We all once were subjects of Satan. Subjects of the being who has at his command, Paul tells us in chapter 6, verse 12, rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world, and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. He deserves the long title because he is a ruler in this world. He is a ruler of all those who do not bend the knee to Jesus Christ. Paul tells us you once were a subject, a slave of that Satan, tied up, bound, enslaved by that Satan. Now think about what that means. All the things that detainees of death don't want in God, they do want as subjects of Satan. They desire the devil, want to serve the devil, live for the devil, and want the devil to dwell with them. They may not quite put it that way, but if you're not a subject of God, you're a subject of Satan. Your allegiance is to Satan, not God. Your will, your wants, your desires are in line with, in league with, in allegiance to the devil. That's who you once were, says Paul to the Ephesian church. Number three, Paul gets very practical. What you once were, were doers of disobedience. When you're a subject of Satan, your normal activity, your normal activity is to disobey God. It's to do what Satan wants you to do. What God doesn't want you to do. You're a doer of disobedience. Listen to how Paul describes it in several ways. You used to be dead in your transgressions and sins. You used to follow the ways of the world. You used to be disobedient. You used to gratify the cravings of our sinful nature and follow its desires and thoughts. You were a doer of disobedience who you are in allegiance to, you see, determines what you do, what you say what you think. You once were a full-fledged doer of disobedience. Number four, Paul says you once were rejects of wrath. Verse three, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. What's wrath? Well, that's anger, right? Who's anger? Well, listen to Romans chapter one, verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. We're talking about being a reject of God's wrath. Now, why am I using the word reject? Not simply for alliterative purposes. Rather, remember, that's what happens. We are shut out from the presence of the Lord 
for all eternity. That is, we're rejected by him, by his wrath. His wrath rejects us. Romans 2 verse 5 says, But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. Verse 8, for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger in store for them. We're, we're heading for ultimate rejection by God because of our sin. We are rejects of God's wrath. Romans 9 verse 22 says that the object of, God, of God's wrath are being prepared for destruction. Paul tells the church, you once were a reject of wrath. You once were turning yourself into a reservoir built to hold God's eternal wrath. You once were this way. But... Our scripture says at verse 4, goes on to tell us that this all gets turned around. That is what you once were. This is what you are now. Everything changes at verse 4. Greatest change ever. Just like friend Chuck, right? He worked so hard lifting weights and bulking up hours and hours of training each week for months, even years, and his body completely changed. Boy, he worked hard. It's just like that, isn't it? No, it isn't anything like that. Not at all. Look at verse 4. It's marvelous. But because of his great love, for us, God, who is rich in mercy. Aren't those the greatest words you ever heard? Say them after me. Shout them out. You have my permission. Love. Oh, come on. Love. God. Mercy. Yeah. Aren't those words wonderful? But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, and there's tiny little us. In the middle of it. Did you hear it? Oh, thank God. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy. Isn't that the most glorious thing you've ever heard? To think we even get mentioned in it at all. Because of his great love for us, God rich in mercy turns everything we once were around into our now. You're no longer a detainee of death. You are spiritually alive with Christ. Are now. You're no longer a subject of Satan. You are a co-heir with Christ. God who has raised you up with Christ, seated you with him in the heavenly realms. You know where Christ sits, don't you? He sits reigning at the Father's right hand and you're right there with him. That's how with Christ, in Christ you are. We had a sermon series on that. In Christ, being in Christ. You're a co-heir with him are now, you're no longer a doer of disobedience. You're one who goes after and does good because you're God's handiwork. And that makes you a good work go-getter. 
Your life is now about doing the good that God prepared in advance for you to do. A worker for God are now. And you're no longer a reject of wrath. You're beloved by God, drenched in his mercy and towel dried by his kindness. Allison years ago made uh, bath towels with a little hood uh, that she sewed on them for our kids when they got out of the bath. We drenched them clean in the bath and then they'd lunge for that towel we were holding open for them. We'd wrap them up and hold them close to us and towel dry them from head to toe. That's you and me, beloved, beloved by God. Are now. Most amazing thing is how this comes about. This passage from verse 1 to verse 10 tells us we don't have an ability to, a desire to, nor a clue how to turn our lives around. Only God knows how to do it, desires to do it, and is able to do it. He does it with something called grace. Something we didn't earn, something we didn't want. God says, I'm going to give it to you anyway because, well, that's the kind of God I am. Grace is, as many of you know, favor undeserved. We don't have it coming. We don't deserve it. After, uh, after becoming a major league hero for the Dodgers in the 1965 World Series by scoring the winning run with a home run that hit the left field foul pole in game seven, Lou Johnson, hero, began walking down the road of drug and alcohol abuse cost him everything. Just six years after that winning home run, he lost his uniform, he lost his glove, he lost the bat from that game, and then he lost his World Series ring. He used all of these, pawned them, to pay for his drug habit. Eventually, Johnson got cleaned up, and after for 30 years, for 30 years, tried to get his World Series ring back. Wasn't able to. But uh, one day in 2001, the Dodger president at the time, Bob Graziano, found out that Johnson's World Series ring was about to be auctioned off on the Internet. Graziano immediately wrote a check for $3,500, brought the ring, bought the ring, I should say, bought the ring before it even went to bid. Graziano did for Johnson what Johnson had been unable to do for himself. He didn't deserve it. He made a mess of his life, but Graziano did it for him anyway. Johnson wept when Graziano gave him the ring. It felt like a piece of me had been reborn, he said. Welcome to the land of grace, Lou Johnson. And of course, our World Series ring purchase on the internet is so much costlier. It's priceless. It's the blood of Jesus shed on the cross. A gift of grace from God. 
What we could not do for ourselves, God did for us in Jesus Christ. What detainees of death, subjects of Satan, doers of disobedience, rejects of wrath cannot possibly do, God did for us in Jesus Christ. Welcome to the land of grace. God made us alive, made us co-heirs with Christ, made us his handiwork and his beloved. This week I I realized that um, when I was studying I realized that when I teach my 12th grade catechism class about this, God being gracious to us, God doing something we don't deserve and, and can't do ourselves nor even want to do, I have a tendency to make it just kind of abstract, too abstract as R.C. Sproul says it. I have a tendency to portray God as someone who is just about the business of, well, making sure all the accounts are settled. Here's what I mean. God, I would say, God has every right to let every one of us perish in hell because of their disobedience. But he says, I'm going to save many by the death and resurrection of my son Jesus. His death will pay the price for our sin. His punishment on the cross will be the punishment that all those I save don't have to endure anymore. God is like a, well, he's like a great accountant. God makes sure his justice is satisfied. This is all very biblical. It's, it's very confessional. It's in our Heidelberg Catechism, as a matter of fact. This is not wrong, but it is incomplete. I saw that and, and thought of that this week as I studied. The job of an accountant, tax time is, is fast approaching. It's, it's upon the accountants, of course, is, is sometimes incorrectly portrayed as a job where the person in it does not have to have any sort of relationship with his or her client. Just give me your numbers. I'll plug them in. I'll tell you what you owe. Don't tell me about your kids or about inflation or your marriage trouble or about how you got COVID two weeks ago. Just give me the numbers. Just the facts, ma'am, like Officer Friday on Dragnet. Just give me the numbers. Let me do my bean counting in the back room few weeks, I'll have your tax return ready for you. But grace, grace is just way too personal to leave it like that. Grace is an act of a gracious God. There would be no grace if God were not being gracious to us. There would be no grace if God's character was not filled with grace. If God were not gracious... That, that song, Above All, we're going to sing it, made popular by Michael W. Smith, says that God is so far above everything, all powers, all kings, all nations, but then says, you know the words, crucified, laid behind a stone, you live to die, rejected and alone, like a rose trampled on the ground, you took the fall and thought of me, above all. Grace is personal. It's given to us by a personal God who loves and shows compassion and mercy and makes himself available to us through prayer and reading his word. He's not only about having his justice satisfied. He's about thinking of you and me above all, all the time. 
You see it in the parable of the prodigal son, don't you? This father sees his son long way off, runs to his son. He's filled with compassion for his son, speaks to his son, throws his arms around his son, kisses his son. It's sheer grace in action. The God who is above all, personally embracing the beloved object of his grace. Now, what do you do with this? With a God who personally wraps his arms around you and brings you from death to life, from slavery to freedom, from disobedience to obedience, wrath to love. What are you doing with this God? The text tells you what it is you are to be doing. The text says God loves you, God completely changed you, God graced you, God did it all. You respond with faith, with belief in him. He gives you that too, by the way, the text says, Ephesians 2.8. You respond in faith, and then it's very simple what you do next. People who have been changed by God, your life now is about doing what is good. Doing the good things God prepared in advance for you to do. Not so that your life will turn around. God already did that. God saves you for doing good. Are you doing good? Are you doing the little do-good things? Kids, are you honoring your parents? Listening to what they say, obeying them, treating your younger sibs with kindness and patience. Young people, staying out of trouble, staying sexually pure, looking for ways to serve others and care about them. Adults, you're doing the little do-good things? Are you patient with your children? Working hard at listening and understanding your spouse? giving appropriate amounts of money cheerfully back to God, taking care of your neighbors, visiting family members who are alone, looking for people you don't know in that, that room out there, shaking hands, smiling, introducing yourself, getting to know them, letting them know you care about them. Are you paying attention to the needs in the church, the cries for volunteers, servant opportunities? Little do good things that God prepared in advance for you and I to do. Because he recreated us in Christ. Totally changed us. Do you wonder what good works God has prepared in advance for you to do? I don't think this passage is talking about monumental things. It's just talking about going through your life day by day being someone who shows care and love for others. That's our normal day-to-day -day prescribed activity. Wherever we go each day, it becomes our habit. Little do-good things. Care, love, compassion, kindness, mercy, gracious things. Makes sense. Gracious father. Gracious kids. So, 
go do good. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we're so thankful that you did take us from death to life, from slavery to freedom, from disobedience to obedience, from wrath to love, and you changed us through and through because of Jesus. And you did it totally by grace. We didn't earn it. We just received it. We opened up our arms and received it. Thank you for that gift, for that greatest change gift in our lives. And thank you that it was all by grace. And thank you now that you've told us what we can do to give you thanks, to just do good. Do what's good. The little things, sometimes the big things too, but every single day, the day-by-day -day good things give us a desire, give us the will, give us the power to do them, to follow your lead. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.